and I thought I had everything read, or I, I was on track to, but I apparently didn't finish the Avengers. I just realized when you said that, I'm like, oh, I still had half the Avengers to read. I am going to be flying by the seat of my pants tonight. The Avengers win. <laughs> Spoiler alert, man. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Welcome back, Steve. We are continuing to record. We will go ahead and record the second half of November 1964. And as I said last time, continue our grim death march through the end of 1964, which we have been covering <laughs> for the last many episodes of this podcast. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't oversell it there, buddy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we are going to do it. We are going to do this thing. Okay, what's what's next? You're covering the next book. What are we covering next? I believe it's Tales of Suspense, which should be mine. Tales of Suspense. So for the first time, we have Captain America as our co-feature. And it's interesting, They, with both Tales of Suspense and Tales of Assange this month, they're diminishing the original title. It says Tales of Suspense in little letters, and then featuring, and in the same size lettering, Iron Man and Captain America. And they're very clearly co-starring in this book without either one being... The main feature. So we have the return of the Black Knight. So we have Iron Man in the front half of the book and Captain America in the back half of the book. So we're going to start with Black Knight starring in Iron Man. Yes. So Black Knight, the Iron Man villain, is showing up in but, the Iron Man story. But he hasn't been an Iron Man villain. He started off as a giant man villain. And Did then, he? yes. Oh, he fought, wait, you're right. He originally yeah. fought Giant Man and the Wasp. And then he fought the Avengers as a member of the Masters of Evil. And now he has made the jump, and now he is going to be an Iron Man villain, which in some ways makes more sense. He's a scientist, and he's got gadgets. He works as an Iron Man villain in some ways more than he worked as a giant man villain, but it is this is new for him to be fighting Iron Man. Now, in the Masters of Evil issue where they all swapped antagonists, did these two no, did these two get paired up in that in that issue? No, the Iron Man failed to swap in that issue. So he ended up fighting the <laughs> Melter. And it's like, no, Iron Man, you're supposed to be swapping antagonists and fighting the antagonist who is not designed to defeat you. You are still fighting the Melter. You are doing it wrong. He should have had him fight uh, Captain America. Then he could have just melted his chain mail. And then he just would have been, you know, all bare chest. <laughs> <laughs> when last we saw the Black Knight... Thor was like, we defeated the Black Knight, now I'm going to ride his horse. And, oh, man, this is awesome. And he was riding the Black Knight's winged horse. And they're like, hey, Thor, are you going to keep that horse? He's like, no, I guess I have to return it to the Black Knight. Even though he's in prison, he still gets to keep his horse. Well, it turns out that was a mistake because now we have the flying horse freeing the Black Knight from prison. So, yes. Thor, you should have just kept the dude's horse. But he didn't do it. Yes. At the bottom of page two, we then get a little vignette of the Avengers and this is some pretty lazy uh, writing from Lee here, that the Avengers are all supposed to head out to some sort of out-of-town charity benefit show, but Wasp has decided to change her makeup again. And so all the boys are sitting around like, eh, why is this girl doing girl stuff? Including Captain America saying, the trouble with girls is they all act like females. So it, it's, I, I find this pretty it's one of those things that's like both I find it fascinating as a time capsule of, you know, what was going on in that day and age and also pretty lazy writing. Yes, it is terrible. We, we have a, a silly little thing here where um, Ant-Man and Wasp end up holding on to Thor's hair to catch a ride to this out of town event. And Captain America is holding onto his shoulders. So basically, <laughs> yes. Thor is the family station wagon here. Iron Man, of course, can get there under his own power. Wait, actually, is he going? No, I, this is a bizarre beginning of this story. We have the whole adventures hanging out and all getting ready to go someplace. And then they all take off and Iron Man's like, okay, bye, guys. And then he doesn't go with them. And then he goes off and does his own comic. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is an Iron Man story. And wherever the writers right. were going, they're going without us because we're going to start the story without him. Yeah. OK, so he says, but we've decided one Avenger must always remain near at hand in case of emergencies, uh, which is something they don't keep up that long. <laughs> but that is something I guess they have been doing sometimes. Um, but he doesn't. He then goes to work. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess they're saying like in in the New York area that, you know, uh, they're going to some out of town location. 
which they never specify. So anyway, the Black Knight then starts attacking the factory and uh, right as uh, Tony Stark gets back to the office and then uh, he realizes he had not charged up his chest device and so he's starting to have an attack. Um, they're like, oh, we'll call the hospital. He's like, no, 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 no. Just put me in my office and let me rest for a little bit. <clears throat> Which is, of course, as you pointed out, how... How Happy got his job in the first place. Right. How Tony realized Happy was going to be a loyal assistant. As he was just like, yeah, okay, sure, boss, whatever. Pepper calls a doctor anyway. But then meanwhile, the Black Knight's attack is becoming something that is unavoidable. And so uh, Happy and Pepper end up getting drawn over to see that, allowing... Tony Stark, the privacy to go into his office, lock the door and plug himself. Goody, goody for him. He really needs to, you know, be better about that stuff. So Iron Man then comes out and uh, starts battling the Black Knight. Uh, The Black Knight stuff, like equipment, seems to be less corny this time for some reason to me. I mean, I don't know. Slightly. (laughs) Slightly. Yes. But I mean, let me put it this way. He doesn't have itching powder. No, that is true. Although, honestly, that was probably one of the more effective weapons he had. Oh, yeah. No, I, I would not want any villain to be hitting me with itching powder. But yes, it was pretty like, silly. And uh, now he's got, he's got gigantic tentacles that come out of his lance. And they're kind of a, you know, a believable impediment for Iron Man. Meanwhile, switch back to Happy and Pepper Happy has now decided that to get into Stark's office, he needs to inch along the ledge outside the window and then crawl in the window of Stark's office. It looks very, very perilous when it is drawn here. Yes. Um, But this gives the Black Knight an opportunity to kidnap Happy. That's not good. Black Knight seems to suck all the power out of Iron Man's armor. And then at that point, Black Knight drops Happy seemingly to his death. But then it turns out that Iron Man just was faking it when he started falling to his death because of these power sucker things. The Black Knight, he is defeated by Iron Man, and Iron Man basically delivers him like a sack of potatoes to the cops. But at this point, he realizes his heart is just too weak and he's too dependent on his uh, Iron Man chest plate. And so he just needs to be Iron Man all the time. You know, Going back and forth between Iron Man and Tony Stark is just uh, too dangerous, and he will just remain Iron Man all the time. So then he comes out of Stark's office, Pepper and Happy, saying, oh, Mr. Stark, you know, are you all right? And Iron Man says, Mr. Stark isn't here. He left by another secret entrance. He'll be out of town for a while, and he left me in charge. You? And uh, he says, but Mr. Shark was ill. He couldn't have just left town. He's like, it was just a dizzy spell. He got over it. And then he went out. And so this is setting up a little thing that's going to be going on for the next few months where Stark is missing and Pepper and Happy suspect that Iron Man is behind some sort of foul play. So that is setting up that for the next few months. Yes. So uh, any thoughts about that before we move on to Capitan America? You know, not terrible penciling and inking from heck in this issue. I didn't particularly like Black Knight when he fought Giant Man. I didn't particularly like him when he fought the Avengers. And I don't particularly like him here. When Dane Whitman, this Black Knight's cousin, eventually becomes the hero Black Knight, I love that character. He does not have the, well, does not, he, I guess he does have the silly lance at first from time to time. That character works. This character ultimately does not. I don't like him as a villain. We've had so many stories where Tony Stark is like, oh, I'm hanging out with Happy and Pepper, and suddenly I collapse. The whole essentially central tension of this book is when will Tony collapse from forgetting to plug in his breastplate? And I just don't think that's an interesting central tension of this book. I just think this book just fundamentally doesn't work. We have this sort of interesting development at the end where he's like, okay, I'm now going to implied that I've done away with Tony Stark possibly through means of foul play um, and that will set up a new ongoing tension with Happy and Pepper but ultimately just not working. Book's not working. Okay, so let's move on to our first Captain America co-feature story that we've had. Uh, We had these, as you referred to it, the backdoor pilot in the previous issue and now we have Captain America in his own adventures. And as I think we discussed a little bit in the previous episode where we talked about this event coming up in these books, there there are some problems with this book. They really do not know how to approach it. And that really is 
kind of glaringly obvious right from the very beginning here, <laughs> unfortunately. It is. I think this is definitely an underconceived, undercharacterized book that it is. They do not have a strong uh, franchise here. They do not have a strong situation for Captain America. However, I think this is a delightful story. And this is the first time in a long time on Tales of Suspense that we have seen one Mr. Jack Kirby, because he did just a few Iron Man episodes. Uh, he certainly never did any Uatu the Watcher in the back half of the book. And here we have Stanley, author, Jack Kirby, illustrator, inked by Chick Stone, gorgeously inked by Chick Stone. And we have, it is such a wonderful relief, such a wonderful, exciting thing, especially after the art generally pretty dreadful on all those Uatu backup stories to see a Lee Kirby Stone book here in Tales of Suspense uh, doing an amazing job with this fan, with this Captain America story, which, as you say, doesn't really work, but I still like it a lot. Yeah, and and this uh, splash page uh, for page one for this story is just, you know, the the best of Kirby. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of things that you would say are the best of Kirby. This doesn't have his cosmic stuff in it, but just in terms of, uh, you know, dynamic uh, figure work and a big dramatic image uh, that is about as good as you're going to get. So um, we so this is something that kind of like what we talked about in the previous issue uh, where the Avengers always want to have somebody staying behind. Now, in that case, Tony Stark was more or less playing hooky. He just went back to his office. But here, Captain America takes this solemn duty very seriously. And he is... Um, Hanging out in the Avengers in the uh, Avengers Mansion, um, is this the first time we have seen Jarvis, and or is this the first time we have heard him called Jarvis? This is the very first appearance of Jarvis. Avengers Mansion has never had a butler before, and so we have the very first appearance of someone who will go on to become a major character in, um, well, a major character in Marvel Comics over the years, and then introduced in a very different manner in the MCU. When we first meet Jarvis in the MCU, he will be an AI assistant to Tony Stark. And then only in the Peggy Carter TV show will we find out there was originally a human sort of Butler Jarvis type character. But anyway, suffice it to say Jarvis, the Avengers British Butler, a character somewhat similar to say Alfred in Batman, another sort of incongruously British Butler living in America, but Jarvis, a major character. And here we have him introduced as sort of, their first sort of half-hearted attempt to give Captain America a supporting character. Yes. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and at the bottom of page two, um, Captain America is going back through his old scrapbook album. Uh, and once again, you know, he was just frozen in ice in the Antarctic, considered dead for years and years and years. Where was the scrapbook hidden? <laughs> Kept yes. safe. How did he get it back? And then uh, we cut to some gangsters who are going to be taking on the Avengers. And the uh, gang boss is confident, his lackeys not so much so. But he demonstrates how they're going to attack the Avengers by breaking the weakest link in this chain. And then you find the weakest link, you break that, you can break the Avengers. They say, well, Captain America is nothing but a glorified acrobat. And so uh, we just attack Avengers Mansion on the night when he is the one in charge. And we can get it. So, <laughs> but first they go out and they send out the goons to go get Jarvis. So they go kidnap Jarvis first to find out who is the one at Avengers Mansion this time. Certainly not the last time that poor Jarvis will get beaten. Not poor Jarvis. Oh, no. Uh, will have a lot of brutality inflicted on him over the years. Not least of which by Hawkeye when he turns himself into a hero. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jarvis is introduced on page two of the story and already on page three, he has been kidnapped and beaten up, which is a pretty good prediction of what his poor life's going to be like in the comics for the next 60 years. Yes. The bad guys show up at um, Avengers mansion and they just start opening fire on Captain America. And uh, they did bring some kind of weird armored suit in order to, you know, have some sort of superpowered something against Captain America. Uh, the person in the suit is able to knock out Captain America. So we then see these goons who are in typical Kirby purple jumpsuits and weird uh, helmet type things. Go ahead. and They're trying to break into the Avengers safe in order to whatever is in there must be very, very valuable. So we're going to go ahead and do it. 
they apparently the the safe that the Avengers have can just be uh, cut through with a torch. Apparently, <laughs> yes, you'd think they would have better technology than that. But Captain America, although he is tied up, he's able to get his hands free just through uh, guile and strength. And so then he is fighting all the bad guys with his feet tied together. And there are some really nice action shots of him being able to pull this off in a way that Kirby makes quite believable. He then is able to use the blowtorch to cut the rope off of his feet and free his feet as well. It's just a fantastic whole battle sequence here. Uh, on the bottom of page seven, uh, he is able to sort of stack up all the bad guys on top of his shield and then crush them all against the wall in a very nice sequence. Uh, we then also see Captain America treating the guy in the armor like he's a like the guy in the armor is a bull and Captain America is a Toreador. Captain America even at one point says, Ole! So <laughs> they've got like some kind of bazooka things and Captain America ends up uh, making it backfire by putting his shield up to it, just like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he puts his finger in the uh, shotgun and it blows out the back. Basically the same thing. <laughs> yes. Just more fantastic action fight sequences. In the end, Captain America has taken care of all the bad guys. They're all strewn about unconscious in their purple jumpsuits and brown boots and weird headgear. And then he says, too bad Jarvis has the evening off. I guess he is completely unaware still that Jarvis was kidnapped as soon as he left the building. <laughs> yes. He says, I'll have to tidy the room by myself. Oh, well. And then he has this really kind of like, uh, man, what, 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 what's going on with my life? Kind of look on his face <laughs> in that last panel. And he just says, I'm sure glad it's almost morning. I'm one tired Avenger. I never used to feel tired. I guess when a fella reaches my age, he just starts to get soft after he just took care of a whole battalion of uh, bad guys. And, and also, as we determined, as we discussed earlier, he's really not that old. <laughs> even even if he hadn't had a body that had been perfectly preserved for the last 15 years, then he still wouldn't be that old. He would only be like 45. He'd be our age. But I guess I guess we are getting pretty tired. Yes. <laughs> So he wouldn't even, what? I mean, he was probably born in 1920, so he would be 44, younger than me. But yes, but then he was flash frozen for 15 of those years. So he would like really only be in his mid-20s at this point. So yes, basically Captain America has an empty life. He still doesn't have any friends or family or anything. Even, it's interesting, Rick Jones isn't in this story. You would think that that's his natural sidekick. He doesn't even have Rick. He just has this brand new character of Jarvis, who he doesn't seem especially bonded with. <laughs> it doesn't even occur to him that he needs to be rescued or go rescue him. They really haven't thought through this character yet in terms of making this character work, but they know all he's good for is action sequences. They're like, okay, let's have a massive 10-page fight scene of him fighting goons in Avengers Mansion, and really, that's all you need, because that makes for a delightful 10-page goon fight story, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's certainly visually wonderful, but yeah, it's it you can get the feeling that they don't really know what they're going to be doing with this character in his uh, solo book going forward. One thing about the inking, there's this huge difference between page 5 and page 6, where page 5 is a beautifully inked page with a heavy brush, dark shadows, good spotting of blacks. And then you get to page six and page six, when I think of Chickstone, it's funny. Chickstone is an amazing inker. He's a really excellent inker. He's been inking most of Kirby's work for the last several months and doing an excellent job. But when you say to me, Chickstone inks, I unfortunately picture pages like page six in my head because occasionally Chickstone would get too light on the inks and something you know, he clearly did page five with a heavy brush and then found out that, that he was running out of time. And he does page six seemingly mostly with pen. Or running out of ink. <laughs> or literally running out of ink. <laughs> and there's like literally half as much ink on page six as there is on page five. And it yeah. is too light. And it is it is too immaterial. There's, there's not enough... What's the word I'm looking for? There's not enough... Uh, um, uh, concreteness, right, not okay. enough heft, not enough matter here. And unfortunately, Chickstone, because he would occasionally ink pages like this, got a bad reputation in my mind. And even though I know better and I know Stone was usually great, I still I still worry when it's Stone that there's going to be pages like page six. Okay. 
So I believe it is your turn to do Tales to Astonish. Yes. All right, let's go ahead and jump into. So this is interesting. Tales to Astonish, here they put the names of the heroes first. It says Giant Man and the Incredible Hulk. And then in smaller letters, Tales to Astonish. It says they're sort of given equal weight on the cover. It says, see the Hulk captured at last. And the top half of the cover has Hulk captured, which doesn't happen to the end of the Hulk story. And the bottom half says, see Giant Man now walks the android. And it's definitely the Wasp being de-emphasized in Marvel Comics as a general rule at this point. She has been very much de-emphasized in this book. This used to be like starring Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp, and now she is going unmentioned on the cover, although she does show up. She is seen, seen, but not mentioned on the cover. So then we get to a bizarre first page where we have Giant Man showing off for disabled kids in some sort of orphanage while the Wasp buzzes around him. Then we get to the credits, and the credits say... Written by Stan Lee, he's going to be a habit, which clearly was supposed to be setting up some continuing thing with the way they accredited the rest of them. And then suddenly they have an editor's note. You rarely see typed font in a Marvel comic, but it says, editor's note, we had announced that another artist would draw this strip, but circumstances beyond our control have caused a change in plan. With Dick Ayers on a brief vacation, Steve Ditko quickly penciled Stan's script while George Bell inked it seconds before deadline time. Our sincere thanks to them both. And the implication is our sincere thanks to them both and our sincere apologies to you, the reader at home, because we are not proud of how this issue turned out. (laughs) It's interesting because the second half of this book is also Dicko Inked by Bell, and they do not apologize for the second half. The second half is presumably Dicko and Bell working at their normal speed and doing a normal, perfectly fine job, perfectly fine job by Dicko and Bell doing the best he can or George Russo's doing the best he can, but same team on the first half of the book, and they apologized him from the first half of the book because it is clearly rushed. And I guess they didn't know Dick Ayers was going on vacation. I'm not sure what went wrong here. Could have been Dick Ayers, you know, just been like, oh, dude, didn't I tell you I'm going on vacation? Or it could have been somebody else was scheduled to do it. And so Dick Ayers would have been the usual fallback. But since he's not available either, then you get uh, then you get Ditko and Bell. But I don't know. Yeah, that, that's how I read that. Also, I will point out that on the splash page, you talk about all the different things that they seem to be obsessed with. How does Hank Pym get around when he is yes. in Superman, when he's in superhero guys? So on the left, bottom left corner of the splash page, there's a weird looking thing drawn and then a little uh, caption that says, no, this isn't a modern frozen custard stand. It's Giant Man's new chemically powered Convert-A-Car. Hey, guess what? Regular cars are chemically powered. That's what. And for that matter, a lot of regular cars are called convertibles. So a convert right. car is not a particularly impressive name. Right. But he says he had it custom built at Tony Stark's factory. It won't win any beauty prizes, but it's more comfortable than the back of a flying ant. So right there, Stan Lee is like, oh, that is an ugly design there, Steve. Um, I'm going to throw you under the bus on this one and have it mostly covered up by balloon, by speech balloons and captions. You can barely see the thing behind those. I okay. swear, at this point, it's been almost a one-to-one ratio in terms of issues of Ant-Man slash Giant Man and bizarre ways for Ant-Man slash Giant Man to get around town. It's like they really feel like every single issue there has to be a new bizarre way for Giant Man and the Wasps to get around town. Now, I got to say, this issue, supposedly penciled by Steve Ditko, I, if you had told me to guess who penciled this issue, I couldn't have told you. I would have guessed Ayers, probably. It does not feel like Ditko at all. I guess if, once you told me it's Ditko, I can see it a little bit in the body work. Bottom half of, the bottom half of page two, the three panels across the bottom of page two, those look like Ditko. They don't to me. I mean, you've got sewers and Dicko of sewers, but you have none of the wonderful Dicko sewerness you would normally get here. I, I know, you know, I, <laughs> I, I just, I, Dicko is working so fast here, dealing with some other artist who chooched out on them that there, he is bringing no Dicko-ness to the equation here. But anyway, so then we have, of course, Eggman has gotten out of prison. He is working around the sewers. <laughs> Egghead. Egghead. I'm sorry, egg, did I say Eggman? You said I am egg the Eggman. Man. I am the walrus. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Uh, I was thinking of the Beastie Boys song, but yeah, okay. So Egghead has gotten out of prison. He then says like, okay, I'm going to attack Giant Man. First, let me use 
this ray gun to steal a mannequin. Never mind that it would be easier to just pick up a mannequin and walk off with it than use a ray gun to levitate it across the street. He then says, all right, now that I've stolen a mannequin from a store, first let me cover it in radioactive mud. It it isn't radioactive at first. He's just saying, to give you almost limitless strength, I'll apply this special compound to your waxen skin. And then he shoots it with this ultra beta beam and to, to grow him bigger. Yeah, it's it's just really bizarre. But like, you know, if you if your goal here is to have a giant robot to fight giant man, then just build a giant robot to fight giant man. Don't start with a mannequin, then cover it in goop and then use an ultra beta beam to make it bigger. Clearly, you didn't really want that mannequin you stole. That mannequin you stole did not actually meet your needs in any way, shape, or form. And you're having to go through great extent here to uh, transform it into what you need. You should have just, you, 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 should, you should never have stolen that in the first place. So then he creates a giant robot. Meanwhile, we see, sure enough, Jan and Hank getting around town in their convert-to-car, which is quite bizarre. Uh, but they then, this is an old fallback for Stanley, a storyline he's done many times. They are being invited to make a movie about their adventures and go to a movie studio to show up and star in a movie about their own adventures. And of course, they fall for it. This is something that Submariner used against Fantastic Four, Green Goblin used against Spider-Man, and now Egghead is using it against Hank and Jan. And of course, they go across town to where this movie soundstage is, and whoops, it's just a big, creepy, empty factory where we are being attacked by Egghead's giant robot monster. And they have a fight that is really poorly drawn and really poorly inked and you would never guess it was Dicko. And the whole time they know it's Egghead because Egghead is talking to them through a little speaker while he's fighting the giant monster even though Egghead is not there. And finally Giant Man figures out, I'm just going to pick him up by the foot and wheel him around so quickly that it's going to make Egghead dizzy wherever he is and make Egghead basically pass out with dizziness wherever he is. And then I'm going to finish fighting the giant. And then the giant is just going to walk off. And you will get, this is very similar to the Human Torch story this month, which we discussed in our last episode, in which the hero and the villain never actually meet. They just sort of, the hero is just sort of sending a feedback loop to defeat the villain wherever he is, controlling something in the hero's vicinity. And then, they're like, do we actually have to defeat the android? No, Egghead won't dare use the android again. Like, uh, <laughs> what are you uh, going to learn? The uh, android then walks off and walks off a pier and falls in the water. And they just assume, well, wherever Egghead is now, he must be very dizzy. And so we don't need to actually track him down and defeat him. So we've got a truly terrible issue that God, maybe it would have been drawn by the world's greatest artist and would have been the world's greatest issue if whoever was supposed to draw it drew it. But uh, it was drawn seemingly in about two hours by Steve Dicko and inked in about 30 minutes by George Bell. And it is a truly terrible issue. Um, So one thing I noticed is that on page 10, when the android is talking about where when Egghead is describing some of the powers of the... um, android here uh he's describing this way that he can change his weight uh that that the the you know the monster that he's got can can change from being very lightweight to being very heavy which seems like it's very similar to what they would eventually have the vision uh be able to do years and years later or i guess not years and years but you know a few years yes anyway one way or the other yeah there's just some really odd art uh, where the uh, the monster is trying to smash the wasp like you would reach out to try and get a fly. And it just is the most <laughs> awkward, stiff-looking <laughs> thing that I can imagine. That's it. That's enough about this story. Let's move on to something better. Sorry, I'm, I just noticed at the letters page, they explain a little bit more about the issue. It says, we had promised to feature the artwork of an old timer in this ish. But before he could draw it, something happened to take him off the strip. And we were caught with a deadline staring us in the face and no giant man. Boy, were we desperate. We even thought of sending the mag out with 14 blank pages and telling you to use them to write your own strip. But we had the feeling you wouldn't think it was as amusing as we did. Then, at the last possible second, daring Steve Dicko and blushing Georgie Bell, 
volunteered to pencil and ink the whole blame to yarn in three days. You should have seen us work. We got the story to the printers with about 20 seconds to spare, and we hope it's okay. We didn't have time to proofread it, recheck it, or anything. So if you like it, we're geniuses. And if you don't like it, and I don't, at least you know why. <laughs> wow. So three days for Steve Ditko to do those, what was it, 10 pages? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, for Kirby, that would have been nothing. But um, 14 pages. 14, 14 pages. Page, sorry. Okay, so, yeah, it's like six pages a day. Dicko was already doing three other books this month because he was still right, Spider-Man, right. Doctor Strange, and Hulk. So yes. that brings us to the second half of the book, which has the same credits. The incomparable Stanley author, the inimitable Steve Dicko illustrator, the indescribable George Bell Inker, the inevitable Sam Rosen Wetterberg. But they're not apologizing from this time because they spent some more time on the back half of the book. We have the Incredible Hulk captured at last. We have, once again, a Soviet spy is in a big red piece of armor. He is fighting the Hulk. The Hulk tumbles down a cliff. We then see the Hulk back at the lab trying to create uh, something to an electronic scanner to track the robot. We then get a major new cast member arrives that Colonel Glenn Talbot has shown up to help work on security at the base and get to the heart of this whole Hulk banner issue. And he instantly meets General Thunderbolt Ross's pretty daughter, Betty, and they hit it off. So just as we introduced a rival for Betty Brant's affection in Spider-Man this month, we now have a rival for Betty Ross's affection in Hulk. Yeah, I just realized Betty Brant and Betty Ross. I just had not thought about that until you said that. I'm like, no, wait, it's Betsy Ross. No, wait, Betsy Ross is the woman with the flag. Yeah, no, I just hadn't noticed they're both named Betty. Well, indeed, Betty Brandt and Betty Ross, that can get confusing, couldn't it? Oh, I'm sure <laughs> no one will ever get those too confused. Wait, look, look at the top of page four. And what does he say at the top of page four? Uh, let me see here. Miss um, Ross, I'd like to... What? Um... They changed it. Oh, really? They fixed it here? They did. Oh, man. <laughs> it, I'm looking at the original <laughs> issue on page four, and he says, Miss Brandt. I'd now like to view the surrounding terrain from the air. Would you care to join me in the helicopter? So this is in the Marvel No Prize book. Here we have uh, this panel, top panel on page four, was in the Marvel No Prize book because uh. he refers to Betty Brandt. He refers to Betty Ross as Betty Brandt. Um, and, uh, but I see that like the stinkers they are, they have changed it for the Marvel Unlimited. So sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. It's just, I don't know how they make those decisions, but, you know, probably just whatever whatever uh, poorly paid employee is scanning them in that month, you know, <laughs> making whatever decision. Okay. Meanwhile, Banner has tracked down the robot again. He is fighting him. He is fighting him just as Glenn Talbot and Petty Pross are in the area they, of course, get confused and think the Hulk is attacking them. They don't realize the big red robot is there. Hulk is fighting the big red robot. The big red robot, there's this especially silly thing where the big red robot suddenly discovers a cave that he can make a missile out of. I guess this is supposed to be Bruce Banner's secret cave. But even then, why would he have missile-making apparatus? Why would the giant robot feel the need to suddenly launch a missile at a city? Um, I would think his number one goal would be to get home with his suit of armor, get back to the Soviet Union. But then they just love doing panels of the Hulk leaping up and stopping missiles midair. So this gives them an excuse to do that. However, it blows up in the air and the Hulk crashes to the ground. He is unconscious. And at this point, Thunderbolt Ross, Glenn Calder, and Betty Brandt, sorry, there I am doing it. Betty Ross <laughs> have realized here is the Hulk. We finally can tie him up and we've got him captured. And that is the cliffhanger of the issue. We have him captured, and what will happen next? Betty Brandt is... I'm still doing it. Betty Ross... <laughs> you are. Betty Ross is still worried. She says, Glenn, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what we'll learn. So surely she is understands on some level that the Hulk is really Bruce Banner. But uh, Glenn is already putting a reassuring arm on her shoulder. And indeed, these two characters will eventually get married. And Glenn Talbot will be... will steal Betty Ross away from Bruce Banner, at least for some time. And only once Glenn Talbot is dead does Bruce Banner himself ever get to marry Betty Ross. So that is the Hulk. This is not a great story. Certainly the Soviet 
spy in the red armor was not a memorable villain, but I do generally like, and we still don't have Rick Jones here, which is a bit problematic, but I generally do like the tenor of this strip. I like how Dicko and Lee are ending every issue on a cliffhanger. And this becomes, you know, it's not like the big Doctor Strange epic that we're about to get in Strange Tales, which is a very much, you know, epic story with a beginning, middle, and end. We instead just sort of have this rambling, sprawling epic in these Hulk comics where it almost always, unlike almost every, unlike most Marvel comics, I think Dicko's Hulk always ends in a cliffhanger. And it's just, it's this very shaggy dog story. And I enjoy it. I enjoy these Ditko Hulk stories. Yeah, I very much like these Ditko Hulk stories too and will as we continue going forward. Let us move on. So we are going on to, I'm looking for it here. Oh, I guess we're going to move on to X-Men at this point. Yes, we are. Okay, so this issue of X-Men introduces the uncanny threat of Eunice the Untouchable. Or I pronounce it Eunice. Is it supposed to be Unus? <laughs> God, I hope not. I say Eunice. <laughs> yes, yeah, so do I. Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, Eunice is also a woman's name spelled E-U-N-I-C-E. And I know at least one Eunice. And the first time I'm, I was introduced to her, I was like, Eunice? Like, Eunice the Untouchable? Oh, no, no, no. Right. Like, <laughs> So uh, we see all of the X-Men being repelled from him on the cover. We will find out that he is considered untouchable. And there's some other interesting things to talk about with Eunice that we will see. So first we start out with the danger room and Scott is now the one taking the rest of the X-Men through their paces. Although I do notice that Jean is being made to uh, thread yarn uh, as part of her thing. Now, granted, you look at it and that actually does look like it would be quite a challenge for her to like take this yarn and thread it through all these holes. But it is a little bit like... Oh, you get to play with yarn, little girl. And then, of course, Scott is like, but you dropped a stitch here. Like, (laughs) oh, go (laughs) yourself, Scott. (laughs) Yes, indeed. One of the things that comes up here, and this is a thing that they abandoned pretty quickly, (laughs) is Scott is telling Bobby to change his appearance from more like snow to more like ice, which will be his long-term look. Uh, eventually. But here, when he does it the first time, he says, excellent. By increasing your degree of cold, your body becomes even more icy, making you almost transparent, which seems to imply that he is not just coated in a layer of ice, but he is ice through and through. (laughs) Yes. uh, Which is bizarre. I don't think they ever come back to that, do they? I don't, I don't know if he's ever seen as being transparent again, but no, like it always seemed before, like he's just a normal human flesh and blood dude who is covered in snow. And I'm like, okay. And now this is the first issue where he's like, no, he's not going to be a normal flesh and bone dude covered in snow anymore. He's going to be covered in ice, which is a better look. And it fits better. His name, Iceman. He's not named Snowman. And that's good. But then there's just this very brief moment of like, oh, now you can see the wall through him. And it's like, but I thought he was a flesh and blood dude. What's going on? But yeah, I think this may be maybe the last time they imply that he is transparent. Well, and the first. <laughs> yeah. The first and hopefully the last. Scott gives them the rest of the day off because he now considers them not only just their new leader, but also their new, but in locus parentis or whatever. And we get a little bit, have we really seen here before about Gene really having the hots for Scott before? I mean, more than just dating everybody in the X-Men because she dates around because she's a so-called good girl. Yeah, I think I think this is not the first time they've each pined for each other. But yes, here on we have, you know, as they're talking to each other, Scott is thinking to himself, if only I could tell her the words I really want to say. And then we see a couple of panels later, Gene is thinking, oh, Scott, if only you felt about me as I feel about you. So little do they each suspect that each is pining for the other. But and they they're kind of de-emphasized, I think, from this point on the idea that everybody equally in the X-Men has the hotspot. It's thankfully it's not going to be as much of a everybody wolfing after Gene from this point on. It's going to be clearly a Gene Scott thing, even though even though neither one realizes that the other feels the same way. Yes. Uh, although Warren will sort of uh, still horn himself in there from time to time. So, of course, when they get any time off, Hank and Bobby head out for the Greenwich Village coffee shop. However, they do not make it to the coffee shop this time. 
because there's a kid. Unfortunately, because we love that yeah. coffee shop. Oh, yes, we do. But there's a kid who's gotten somehow stuck on top of a uh, water tower. One of those water towers that you always love in these New York comics. Hank is like, oh, I got to go save the kid. Bobby's like, you're going to give away that you're a mutant. Like, what are you doing? He's like, well, there's a kid in danger. I got to do it. So he takes off his shoes, scales the wall to go and uh, rescue the kid. He rescues the kid. And of course, the crowd turns against him because he is a dirty mutant. So they have to run very quickly to get away from the angry crowd. The second to last panel on page five, uh, I very much like the, the, <laughs> the like Bobby putting on his hat while he's like, whoa, gotta, you know, <laughs> and yeah. just the juxtaposition of the two of their, uh, their figures on that panel are really nice they return back to x-men mansion hank his suit is all torn up like actually both of their suits are torn up so they clearly got away by the skin of their teeth um and hank announces that you know what that's it i'm sick and tired of risking my neck for humanity who only wants to bash me in so i am leaving by the way i'm not sure if you're going to a crunch village coffee house in 1964 you should get dressed up in your rest suit and tie but that's what they do <laughs> well i mean you know there are a couple of squares who are inter they're they're uh hipster curious interested in beatnik chic <laughs> exactly so then uh hank says that he's quitting the x-men i think magneto and his evil mutants are right homo sapiens just aren't worth it so scott is really freaking out about this he uses cerebro to make mental contact with the professor and meanwhile we see the professor is like in some sort of cave with some kind of all-terrain wheelchair with tank treads on it <laughs> he's like uh yeah dude i'm in a almost bottomless cave right now in Europe. Um, I can't talk. Uh, you go deal with your stuff. <laughs> We're like, what? <laughs> On the one hand, it's like admirable that Stanley thinks that people with disabilities shouldn't have limited opportunities in life. But man, he's dumping a lot on his poor artist going here like, hey, Jack Kirby, draw some way for a guy in a wheelchair to be spelunking in a cave. <laughs> and it's like, uh, can people in wheelchairs really spelunk in caves? Well, I suppose if they had awesome tank tread super science wheelchairs, they maybe could. This is not the last time we're going to see this. He's going to spend a long time spelunking in that cave. We're going to see him more in future issues. And he even tells us a little preview here. He says, I cannot turn back. I am on the trail of Lucifer, who is the only thing we've heard about this. And I think it's going to take a long time for that storyline to play out. Is it? I don't remember. But uh, yeah, it almost looks like that that little high check wheelchair thing is floating. And I, I wonder if some of that was just uh, being done no favors by Chick Stone uh, in the way that uh, he inked this. It doesn't really look like he's on any surface that has any horizontality to it at all. No. So we see Hank actually leaving the X-Men mansion. And then it turns out that he has now become a professional wrestler known as the beast, um, which seems like a poor choice to <laughs> <laughs> name your wrestling personality after your superhero personality. And you have the same superpowers for both, but what you're going to do. So we get to see the professional wrestler that he's fighting is Eunice. Okay. So here's the question for you. Yes. Is that supposed to be a menorah on his wrestling belt? <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. That was my question for you. <laughs> it's the it's the eternal question about Eunice the Untouchable. So uh, for those of you who aren't reading along with this, Eunice basically wears a red leotard um, with black, um, black outside underpants that come up sort of halfway up his waist. So it looks sort of like a wrestling champion belt combined with underwear. But it has what looks for all the world like a big menorah on it. It's a got a vertical line down the middle and then three lines coming out of each side of that line. And each of them turns up at the end, like where you would put a candle. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Kirby and Lee, both Jewish, don't really feel like they can make character many characters specifically coded as jewish in their stories izzy cohen is probably the one exception that we can think of so far who is in the search of fury books that we are not covering that's always been you know is that 
<laughs> is that a menorah? I do not know. Anyway, Hank is absolutely unable to uh, even come in contact with this guy and uh, is starting to figure out, hey, wait, maybe he's a mutant and this is his power. Hank is trying to do his best. Uh, I guess they're assuming here that um, wrestling actually is a contest as well as a show because they clearly understand that it's a show. But it seems to be that they're actually going in and seeing who will win rather than having it all just be a pre-plotted thing. Eunice beats Hank, and Hank at this point is sure that he must be a mutant. But before he can do anything about that, Mastermind shows up to recruit Eunice for the evil mutants. Eunice seems like, oh yeah, sure, that sounds like a good deal to me. I'm evil, and I'm a mutant, and uh, I want to go do out and do some crime in. What do we need to do? Mastermind says, well, first thing you need to do is you need to prove your loyalty to Magneto, who you've never met and have just been her name dropped right now. But he needs to know you're loyal. So you need to go and beat one of the X-Men. It's like, one of them? I can do all of them. First of two times this month in which the bad guy specifically tells another bad guy, go out and defeat one member of this team, <laughs> which is like... Um, why not tell this person to defeat every member of the team? Why right. tell them to go out and defeat just one? Which we'll get the same thing happening in the Avengers issue we're about to talk about. So then Eunice is walking through New York City just trying to figure out, huh, where would I find the X-Men? And then he happens to stumble across a bank robbery, which of course involves a bunch of goons who look like they came out of a 1930s gangster movie hauling a big sack of cash that has a dollar sign on it. So- of course. Of course. Something so, about something about bank robberies brings out the utmost laziness in Jack Kirby. <laughs> like Jack Kirby <laughs> cannot conceive of bank robbers in any way different from the movie The Roaring Twenties. <laughs> and and of course, all sacks of cash have to have big dollar signs on them. Yes. So Eunice then decides, oh, you know what? I'll rob the bank robbers of their money because you know uh, I could use the money. So, uh, but it turns out that the X-Men, they aren't showing up for the bank robbery, are they? No, they're actually looking for Eunice. So the whole thing about foil, about this bank robbery just sort of seems to be a completely random little detail of the story here. They've been pointed to this area by Cerebro uh, to go find this new mutant. Angel shows up and Eunice is just very calmly taking off his suit and folding it up and putting it over a fire hydrant. Warren's like, well, what's going on? Why didn't he seem to be bothered by the fact that the X-Men just showed up and are coming after him? And he finds out when he just goes and bangs into Eunice's unbeatable force field. Nobody's really able to do much with him. <laughs> uh, Cyclops has shown up with them this time. He isn't just staying back behind. Eunice grabs him and flings him through the air. And Cyclops says, Marvel Girl, plan G5, quickly. And apparently plan G5 is just hey, grab me with your telekinesis and don't let me fall. I'm like, you you really need to call that plan G5? (laughs) You are really overthinking this thing, people. Now, Iceman, try maneuver F12, quick freeze intensity. Like, uh, come on, just, you know, hey, freeze him. (laughs) Okay, sure, why not? Bobby tries to seal him up in a dome of ice since he figures that the, you know, uh, force field will just be inside the ice. But Eunice is able to get out of it pretty easily. What? Oh, yeah. Then they they end up stranding Eunice on the top of a skyscraper while they go and figure out what else to do about him, which is once again, we have to suddenly stop the fight and have everybody go back to their separate corners for no reason when they should have just finished the fight. Utterly ridiculous. Lee can never pull this off when suddenly the heroes go back home in the middle of fighting the villain without actually finishing the fight. So they get back to X-Men Mansion and find Hank has returned. And he is working on some kind of technical thing that's going to be a weapon of some sort. And he tells them that he is going to increase Eunice's power. Everyone's like, have you gone mad? You have joined the evil mutants. Now, of course, at any point, Hank could just explain what he's doing here. But that would not heighten. Yeah, that would not heighten the tension here. So he says nothing about what his plan is, just he's going to heighten Eunice's powers. And this is the best thing for you guys. If you just you just don't just trust me. So they're, of course, fighting each other. Hank ends up finding Eunice, who is calling Mastermind to tell him, oh, yeah, I'm going to have another shot at it. And Hank shoots this beam at him and says, hey, no, I just increased your power. So uh, go ahead and give it a try. 
And so he does, and his invincibility power is now increased. And so this also means that, that the evil mutants think that Hank has now joined them as well. Eunice is just trying pushing things away from him with his powers. He thinks this is awesome. And then he says, I'll grab a cigarette while I call Mastermind and tell him what happened. Hey, I can't touch this blamed thing. It keeps moving away from me. And then the the next the next couple of pants, this whole sequence is pretty funny. Um, it's delightful. Yeah, Eunice is then trying with both hands to grab the pack of cigarettes that is, you know, squeezing out of his hand because of his repulsion uh, powers. He says, blast it. No blamed cigarette is going to stop me from smoking it. <laughs> and then just a lot of physical comedy here as he tries to do this thing. And he starts to realize that this is the result of his power being increased. And we see it ruining all sorts of different things in his life. He can't even eat a steak because the steak bounces away from him, so he's getting hungry. So anyway, the X-Men head back out to grab Eunice, who is completely freaking out because he can't touch anything. So then he begs Hank to reverse the thing, and he does, and so then Eunice can eat a piece of cake. So then they're like, okay, well, you know what? How about we just call it even if you just leave here and you say you won't attack anyone again. And if you go back on your promise, I will just do the same thing with this uh, weapon again next time. And so Eunice is like, oh, yep. Okay. I'm going back to being a wrestler. Goodbye. <laughs> so, yeah, much like the Bob going back to join the circuits again. Yes. Even a similar later on panel. So I gotta say, I love this issue. I yeah. think that Eunice is a fun villain he is somewhat similar to the mob and that you know as the mob was to the circus Eunice is to wrestling but i think that he's got a really interesting power i always was surprised Eunice didn't get used more in the comics he does show up in subsequent years and gets used from time to time but i think that you know the guy of the idea of someone having a repelling force field is an interesting power and him using it as a wrestler is a fun way to introduce the character and I think that, you know, the essential twist in this issue of I'm going to increase his powers, what are you doing? Oh, I'm increasing powers so much that he is bouncing off his entire world is just a delightful twist. Yes. Uh, and specifically that cigarette scene is yes. <laughs> utterly delightful. Okay. Good. We've been recording for a long time. We've got one more book to do. We must finish. This is The Adventures number 10. The Adventures break up featuring the truly different villainy of the evil Immortus. Now, I had remembered them actually saying, it's funny, I I had thought that when we first met Kang, I had forgotten that they established right away with Kang that he is the same guy as Ramatut. I thought that when we met Immortus two issues later, that they did establish he was the same guy as Kang. But they, correct me if I'm wrong, they never do that in this issue. They never say that Immortus is another version of Kang in this issue. Well, as I said, uh, as I said, since my week completely got away from me, I did not read the last third of this book. So I can't tell you for a fact whether or not they did uh, say that or not. But yeah, I was I was like, wait, isn't Immortus one of the versions of Kang? And I mean, obviously, he's got such similar powers. He's just he's like Kang, but his headquarters is limbo. Yeah, That's so <laughs> certainly eventually he will be revealed to be another version of King, but not in this issue. Okay, so we have the Avengers break up. We begin with Captain America is fighting the whole group, just as sort of an exercise, but this is foreshadowing from when they will actually fight each other later in the issue. The colorist keeps forgetting that Thor has pants throughout this issue and oh, really? goes back and forth between coloring Thor's pants as blue and then coloring them as flesh colored. Oh, that um, is, they, they have fixed that in here. I, I think that was probably too unnerving to leave in. Where are your pants? And then we have, you know, poor Jan is getting more and more de-emphasized, more and more humiliated in every book in Marvel Comics. Even bizarrely, they take time to denigrate her in Iron Man, where she has no role to play in the issue. She is getting denigrated and denigrated and denigrated. But somehow this feels like the lowest of all, where the Avengers are sitting around and Wasp is right there. She is sitting at the table with them, although she doesn't get her own chair. She has to sort of sit on Giant Man's arm. And then they're talking about Rick. And they decide, hey, maybe they're gonna maybe they're gonna toss Rick a bone. What sort of bone are they gonna toss him? Well, Iron Man says it it concerns Cap's young sidekick, Rick Jones. Why don't we make his membership in the Avengers official? as the Wasps is, by giving him <laughs> some sort of uniform. 
Right. It's like, oh, what yeah. So- as the Wasps is, the Wasp is a founding member of the Avengers. She named the Avengers. She came up with the name the Avengers. You are in her group, Iron Man. And now you're saying you're going to go ahead and essentially, they don't say honorary member, but they're basically saying they're going to make Rick Jones an honorary member like the Wasp. Like, oh, let's pretend that Rick Jones has powers like we pretend that the Wasp has powers. Right. Uh, and this whole this whole idea is just uh, utterly utterly ridiculous and unconvincing to me. That you know, it's just like he's just some orphan teenager. Like you know, it's not like he's anyway, yeah. I, I feel like there is the ghost of Snapper Carr is hanging over all of this. That in you know the the whole birth of the Marvel universe was based off the sales of the Justice League of America book in the late fifties, and then you know supposedly. Jack Donenfeld bragging to Martin Goodman on a golf course about how well Justice League was selling. And then Martin Goodman decides to revivify the Marvel Universe just to um, spite Jack Donenfeld and jump on board that gravy train. And one of the key elements of that book is they had a teen sidekick who was just a guy who was only superpower was he was really good at snapping and his name was Snapper <laughs> Carr. I have never heard of this before. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so then I think that I think the Rick Jones is basically like, OK, you know, we're following in the footsteps of the Justice League. So we're going to have our own snapper car with Rick Jones. But he started off in the Hulk and he mm-hmm. should go back to the Hulk. So then we cut to once again, Baron CMO is hanging out with the Enchantress and the Executioner in his South American place. And but then a dude shows up, this mystical dude called Immortus, the Lord of Limbo, shows up and he is like, why does he even show up? <laughs> I know you, you've barely read this issue. Obviously, I've barely read this issue. It is late at night. He just says, you know, for for reasons of my own, you know, for my own my own reasons, which I don't need to explain to you, basically. He says, I have observed your futile battles against the Avengers with amusement, and now I shall join you for my own purposes. Right. Well, yeah. that's always an easy way to write, isn't it? To not have to modify <laughs> anybody's actions and just say, it's like, oh, I'm going to be doing this. For my own purposes. Okay, well, motivation solved then. So right. then they're like, oh, yes, well, we don't trust you. So we're going to battle you. Defend yourself, Amortis. And then Amortis, he, we, find, we find out Amortis is sick, which they're very unclear on right away. Right away, <laughs> it makes no sense. Like, okay, so supposedly Amortis is shtick. Let me fix this for you. It's supposed to be that he'll summon up villains from history to fight his enemies. And he does that in the book. He summons, like, I will summon Attila the Hun from the past to come beat you up. Okay, so that's your shtick. Well, the very first person that Amortis summons is Paul Bunyan, (laughs) an actual 20-foot-tall dude named Paul Bunyan. It's like, you're pulling out storybook characters? That's your power is to generate storybook characters? No, he's a time travel villain. And we find out in the Royal Universe there really was a Paul Bunyan in the past. And so then... The executioner still doesn't have his axe, and it's generally problematic for villains to have cutting weapons because you're not allowed to have any blood. But it also doesn't really make sense for him to just be like basically doing karate in these books. Like he needs some sort of weapon. He needs like a big sledgehammer or something. But so then he is finding Paul Bunyan. Eventually, Paul Bunyan is banished, and they say, "Okay, we're impressed by you, Amortis. We want you to go." And again, they say. You must perform a task. I order you to destroy one of the Avengers. Like, why just one? Why not all of them? And then Amorta says, I accept with glee. So uh, <laughs> I don't think of Amortis as generally being a gleeful guy in his later appearances, but here he is experiencing just a little bit of glee at well, the and, idea of defeating one Avenger. And then we end up getting one of the most deliriously goofy sequences <laughs> in the history of Marvel comics. You mean just with the ad in the comic book? Yes. 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 Oh, so my God. So then Amortis's clever plan for defeating the Avengers is he puts an ad in a comic book saying that you can obtain superpowers, send no money, offer limited. And knowing that Rick Jones must read this comic book. And that seemingly only Rick Jones is the only kid in all of New York who does read this comic book because he knows like this will world Rick Jones to me and no other kid. So well, nobody and, and, else. He, and he says, I won't even bother with the coupon. 
I'll go to the address in person right away. So he put this ad in here that says, hey, yeah, send this coupon in to get your free superpowers. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to see the address on here and find it and walk on in. <laughs> and Mortis is behind this big desk in whatever room he's in. I'm like, what? What? What is going on? All right. Yes. Again, the most ridiculous thing about this to me is just that he is not being besieged by kids all day long going like, I am Mortis, send you away with glee. And I wait for the one person who I actually want to hopefully read this ad and come to my office. So then he summons up, sure enough, Attila the Hun to fight Rick Jones. And then what would you expect Attila the Hun to do with his enemies? Imprison them in the Tower of London, of course. Um, <laughs> well, and also not- you get some acrobatic fighting from Rick here on page uh, six, which just looks incongruous. I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> so then Captain America is tracking down Rick Jones. He finds the ad. He follows it himself. Uh, again, seemingly no one else has done this, and he goes in and fights Immortus. And then you get to a really, really, really lazy bit. There are lots of lazy bits in early Marvel comics. This feels like a particularly lazy one. I find this one particularly yeah. offensive, where he just turns camp against the Avengers with just a few words, and it really makes no sense. He's like, he says, he is in a safe place. I promise the Avengers I would not harm him. The Avengers, what have they to do with this? Everything. They told me the best way to control you was through the boy. And he says, you can't make me believe they would betray me. Believe what you will. But if you if you bring them to me, I shall prove what I say. And then that's it. He's like, Captain America's like, okay, fine. You've turned me against the Avengers. And he goes back. He gets in a big fight with the Avengers for real this time. They fight for a little bit and then eventually realize it's silly. Let's all just go talk to Immortus. It's a tremendous waste of space. It is, you know, I realize people just want to go who would win in a fight between our favorite heroes, but they are engaging those whims in the laziest possible way. Finally, Immortus calls up various, again, supposedly people from history to fight our heroes, but the first person he calls up is Goliath, who, okay, you know, depends on how, on your feelings about the Bible, whether or not. Uh, Goliath is an actual character from history, but so Giant Man fights Goliath, but luckily Giant Man finds a rubber band has been stretched across a portion of the room for no reason, and he can use that rubber band to propel himself at Goliath's head and knock him out, much as David once did with the slingshot. Oh, irony. We then see who is, what figure from history has Iron Man been summoned to fight? Merlin, of course. (laughs) We've already seen Merlin at least once in Marvel Comics, Uh, and we will see him again and many times in future years. But he always seems to be a completely different conception of Merlin each time. Speaking of characters who will show up later in completely different conceptions, who is summoned to fight Thor but Hercules? But it is not at all the Hercules that will be so memorably introduced by Jack Kirby in a couple of months. It is a completely different Hercules carrying a club. No beard. No beard. Now, mustache, looking entirely different from the wonderful version that we will be meeting soon. We cut to Cap, who is in the middle of rescuing Rick from the Tower of London, but that process is still ongoing. Meanwhile, Baron Zemo, Executioner, and Enchantress, they decide to just go ahead and take the fight to the Avengers. They smash their way into the Avengers mansion. They get in a big fight. The Wasp gets to be a little bit useful, just buzzing around the Enchantress's head, which is frequently the only use she has put to in these books. We get. Baron Zemo, on the bottom of page 17, has a very sexual gun. He's got... (laughs) (laughs) He's got a very creepy, disturbing... Oh, right, that one. Oh, yes. No, I remember this from the first time I read through this issue. Yeah, no, that's uh, paging Dr. Freud. (laughs) (laughs) Paging Dr. Freud with that that gun. It's It's giving me creepy feelings. So then Captain America shows up. He has rescued Rick. He is now ready to kick the ass of the Masters of Evil single-handedly. He beats the crap out of the Executioner. And then finally, Chantress is like, this sucks. It's time to go ahead and leave. Let's go home, guys. And then you get this sort of bizarre thing where she's like, she seems to think that this whole encounter has gone so disastrously that she has to rewind time so that it never happened. And so that they never answered the mental summons of Immortus. And I'm like going, I don't know. This whole thing seemed like it just sort of ended in a draw. I don't 
you know, it's not like a whole bunch of people died or, you know, something disastrous happened in this fight. You could have just gone home. I don't think you had to make it so that it never happened. But uh, so now I guess the Avengers have still never met to Mortis. I don't know if next time they meet him, they'll know who he is because this whole thing never happened. And sure enough, in the past, they're like, oh, now I'm being contacted by a Mortis again. They're like, ignore it. Hang up on him. We don't want to do this. And then that is the end of the issue. Ghost him. Ghost him. I very much miss Jack Kirby from this book. I miss his art. I miss his co-plotting. We've got Don Hack co-plotting and penciling the book and not doing a very good job on either. You know, Immortus will turn out to be a great character in other hands and will, once he is tied into the whole Kang story, and there will be lots of great Immortus stories yet to come, but you would not sense it here. And his thing is tremendously unclear. And mainly my number one knock against this issue is just how easily Captain America and the Avengers are pitted against each other just for a couple pages, only for it all to peter out. I find that very sort of insultingly lazy. Yeah, I as I have said earlier, I will be coming to Hex defense less and less as we go forward. Uh, there are still some images in this issue where I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no, that's the charming heck art that I like. But there's way more of it. It's just sort of a, he's not well suited to doing a teen superhero book. <laughs> you know, I don't think that he's enjoying doing it. It just looks like he's trying to get through it as quickly as possible. I do like things in the very last panel in the uh, in the book. Um, I really like the, that, and there's an earlier shot also of Zemo's uh, palace that he's got in the uh, Amazon River Basin. Pulls some nice things off here and there, but for the most part, this is just some sloppy art. You know, on uh, page 18, uh, when Cap is swinging from that chandelier, he's just superimposed on top of the chandelier. He's not actually grabbing it in any way. <laughs> you know? yeah. Just little things like that where it's just, you know, I think Don Heck is like, eh, oh, well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. So let me just go ahead and do the thing. <laughs> yeah, Immortus, clearly a retread of Kang, and they very wisely... Um, end up folding them into the same character, along with Ramatut and uh, what there are at least two other the Scarlet Centurion. That's another right, one. Scarlet Centurion. And then in recent years, I think they've added a character named Iron Lad, yes, who is also a version of Kang. <laughs> yes, and maybe, maybe Doctor Doom. Yes, but not. But maybe, but, not. but seriously not. That's not didn't make any sense okay do you have anything to say about this avengers issue steve uh, it's uh, unfortunately gonna be drifting downhill for a while here and i'm sort of seeing that coming oh yeah we have 30 more issues before jolton john musema shows up so uh we got 30 more issues to heck to get through it's gonna be brutal okay everybody that is the second half of november 1964 we just have two more episodes left to go to get through the glorious 1965 Golden Age that's coming up. I say that. There's no particular reason why 1965 was better than 1964. I'm just tired from 1964, and I'm going to get to 1965. 66 is when we really hit the peak of the Marvel Silver Age. That's when the the, the Galactus trilogy happens, and when we have the year of Soupy Sales. Yes, the year of Soupy Sales (laughs) is still yet to come. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming out. We will see you next time. All right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.